Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined, as always, by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in lovely San Diego, California. And kids, this is a great day to be listening to our show. We've got one of the all-time favorite Grateful Dead shows, Dick's Picks Number 4, so clearly one of Dick Lovatla's favorite shows as well. Uh, and there's so much that we like about it. We have uh, seven musical clips We've got great articles. Don't go anywhere. We're going to keep you busy for an hour. Uh, so, Dan, if you could dive right in. February 13th, 1970, the Fillmore East in New York. Well, I says it, baby, looks like we good again. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up, little Susie. We got to go home. Don't change your dial. That's not the Everly Brothers, even though it maybe sounds like them. This is uh, your friends and ours, The Grateful Dead, on February 13th, 1970, at the Fillmore East, uh, covering the, Ever the song The Everly Brothers Made Famous, written by Felice and Boudlow Bryant, uh, back in lovely 1957. Rob, you got to love a show when the dead jump out and start with, uh, or start playing uh, Wake Up Little Susie. Yeah, you do. And, you know, I think... Uh... I'm a big Everly Brothers fan, and I think that song, it's so funny to think that how racy it was when it came out. That was, you know, the song was like sort of, which books got banned? That was a song that was banned from the radio for being for being too racy. Uh, so, a little surprising that that one attracted all the ire of the radio stations, but the Everly's didn't get that one played for a long time, despite it being a big hit. This is true, and it is it's such a great song. The Dead actually wound up playing it about 13 times. They started playing it back in 1970, and then they... Uh, play oh no excuse me this was the first time they ever played it at this show and the last time they played it was in november of 1970 at the cap theater yeah, in portchester yeah. yeah so it, it did not get a lot of uh, coverage by the dead but when they played it they played it great and you know that's what you got to know this album's on dick's picks four uh and in the liner notes um owsley writes about how uh how, the, how this album came about, because he said Bear's Choice had just come out, which was a kind of like a mini live album that they uh, that the Dead put out. Um, and so he had to go on to write about that the songs which were on Bear's Choice, which came from this concert, are missing from this release due to the consideration that you, the buyer, may already have them. Also, the suits have their rules about copyrights and such. I would like to be able to present these shows the way they were, but I guess we must make do with what we have. So, in case anybody's worried at home, uh, they cut out from this show, Katie May, Wake Up Little Susie, Black Peter, and Smokestack Lightning. Uh, we're going to cover all of those today except Katie May. And I, I happen to love Katie May, but it just didn't fit into the, uh, the program. But we're going to hit these other shows that uh, uh, Owsley was uh, disappointed that they couldn't get on this Sticks Picks release when it came out. That's awesome. And I, I keep thinking, uh, Larry, that if Wake Up Little Susie's too racy, I wonder how they felt about Loose Lucy or, uh, <laughs> or, or, or Sugary or some of the other ones that... Uh, that 
that the old sexuality that the Grateful Dead played. Yeah, well, maybe those came around a little bit later, and you know, not not always quite so well. Loose Lucy, I get, is about as obvious as you can get. We like to ball all night. That's I guess. <laughs> yeah, she come running, we ball all night. That's yeah. true. Well, you know, although I don't remember Loose Lucy getting a lot of airplay when we were growing up, so yeah. maybe I just wasn't tuned you, into it. But you, uh, you, even Dupree's, I think, is significantly dirtier than uh, <laughs> than Wake Up Little Susie. You're talking about Jelly Roll Blues. Uh, exactly, Jelly yeah. Roll driving Stone Mad. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's true, I suppose, although I never shot anybody over it. But uh, we, we have so many tunes. We're gonna, I want to um, uh, just really quickly dive right into the second clip we have before we break over into other stuff, because this show coming when it did, uh, February 13th, 1970, so it's right on the cusp of Working Man's. Uh, we're, we're coming out of the primal dead. Uh, the boys are playing a lot of stuff. Wake Up Little Susie's a little more Americana, uh, but they can't stay that way for too long. And the second clip we're going to dive into is Smokestack Lightning. I know we've played this before, a Howlin' Wolf tune uh, recorded back in 1956. Uh, but go ahead and play it because the boys are really on this night and uh, they cover this song very well. never met a good blues tune that they didn't love and uh you know they really go into this one it, it, it's just great and i love the um howlin wolf story about how the song was actually inspired from uh he and the boys back in the day watching the trains go by at night and they would sit out in the country see the trains go by and as he says watch the sparks come out of the smokestack that was smokestack lightning great song and uh what a pleasure to hear the dead play it yeah and the, uh, the story makes sense you know the explanation makes sense but yeah, it's again. I I loved it when Pig covered the blues. I thought that he had such a great blues voice. Uh, he's just a natural for for singing songs like uh, Smokestack Lightning, or um, or uh, or some other ones that we've talked about in the past. You know, there's a handful that were that were just Pig classics. You know, and it seems like Bobby wound up picking up most of those that carried through. Bobby would do the the Smokestack Lightning uh, in the days when we saw it. Would usually typically come out of a truck and so you could either hope for a spoonful or a smokestack to really kind of get the blues jam going um but you know what's really fun is listening to jerry play the guitar on it and he you know he's he's just got that bluesman skill in him and uh, he really just picks that song apart in a great way no doubt so great concert folks and, and we're, we're we're gonna dive back into it in a few minutes um uh just because there's so much good stuff there but there's just a ton of other news floating around right now that uh we don't want to miss, and so we're going to dive into some of these news stories that we have pulled for you today. And the first one, and I'm just going to throw this out there just as a little matter of personal pride, so I hope everybody can 
can live with this with me, but uh, the state of Missouri, man, talk about a state that's come out right out of the box just kicking ass in the legal marijuana scene. Um, what they're doing is, you know, really putting Illinois to shame, considering it's a sister state. And MoCan, which is the big group in Missouri that's running everything, uh, didn't hesitate. And uh, there was a big article in the uh, Riverfront Times, which is the St. Louis alternative newspaper, uh, that just came out yesterday, or February 7th, sorry. And uh, it starts off by saying legal marijuana went, uh, marijuana went legal in Missouri on Friday, February 5th. And that day alone, uh, they sold $5 million worth of cannabis. Over the Friday and Saturday, they sold over $12 million worth of cannabis, $8 million adult use, $4 million medical. That blows everybody out of the water, uh, including Illinois, which I think came in somewhere right around $3 million on its first official day of sales. Now, of course, with, of course, what they don't say is that on Illinois' first official day of sales, it had a limited number of dispensaries because only the... Uh, the, the multi-state operators who had the medicals were operating at that time. But Missouri's given out right out of the box 200-plus dispensary licenses and over 50 cultivation licenses and 30 infusion licenses. And on top of that, Missouri, they were the second-fastest state, second state to come online 87 days from when the, uh, the law was passed in November uh, to when they've got their first adult-use dispensary up and running in uh, Arizona, I think they said they did it in 80 days. Uh, in Illinois, if you take away the medical providers who got to start operating right away, it took about three years. So, um, you know, there, there's really a lot to be learned. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there's, it's not too, too often that I would like, uh, I have to play the role of the embarrassed uh, guy from Missouri, thanks to the wonderful uh, political pronouncements that my state routinely throws out. Uh, but in this instance, I can say that I'm damn proud to be a Missourian because they got it right. And uh, the headline in the, in, the, in, the, in the Riverport News was, Missouri got high as hell last weekend and spent $12.7 million on weed. I'm like, way to go, boys. You know, that's, that's my hometown, boys, and I'm loving it. That's the way to do it. That is big news for Missouri. That's, uh, that's a lot of weed being smoked there. Uh, and again, I love it when new adult use markets open up because it, you know, it takes away that much more market for illicit sales to, uh, to migrate from other states. So, you know, that's, that's $5 million in weed that was on that first day that wasn't bought from, uh, from the illicit side. So it's not going to eradicate it, but it's certainly going to, you know, put a dent in it. And every time another state goes adult use, it makes it that much more difficult in the long term for the, uh, for the illicit market to compete. And I keep saying until all 50 states, you know, have adult use, you know, kind of widespread adult use markets, we're never getting rid of the illicit market. Um, so we've still a long way to go, but, you know, that's a, that's a nice start. It definitely sounds like, you know, Missouri is going to be, you know, north of a billion-dollar market for, uh, for the year. That would be nice. Um, and and uh, talking about another state uh, that seems to be doing things the right way, as far as I'm concerned, Nevada, uh, which is just passing a bill, uh, is, is considering a bill that would remove marijuana from the controlled substances list and strip the pharmacy board's control over it. Apparently in Nevada, the Nevada Pharmacy Board uh, exercises control over the uh, marijuana program. And the, the guy who sponsored the bill said, we don't need several levels of regulations on a substance now that we know is part and parcel of our community and part and parcel of our economy. This is a burdensome regulation. We need to remove the Nevada Board of Pharmacy statutorily now from having oversight over cannabis products and cannabis derivatives. That's just great. So that's huge news. And I, I love the story, and I dug into it. Um, I'd already read it before you'd sent it over to me. 
And I'll tell you why I think it's exciting. I think it's exciting from on multiple fronts. You know, one is that I've always been a firm believer that removing cannabis from Schedule One on a on a federal basis uh, and moving it to a lower schedule would be more problematic than just descheduling it. You know, completely. Like I don't want to see rescheduling. I want to see descheduling. But if there's a second path, which you know there appears there may be at the state level, of saying, okay, well, you know, we can actually just say you no longer have oversight. I mean, is, there may be a path like that as well, where you say, okay, it's a Schedule Three drug, but we're also going to pass a law federally that says that the FDA doesn't have oversight on this. Now, I don't know if that can be done, but if it can't be, and states you know, continue to do what Nevada did, then they might take all the bite out anyway and say, go ahead, make it a Schedule Three, but we're still going to treat it as it's descheduled in our state. So you, know, you guys can, can try to put on whatever restrictions you want, but ultimately we're going we're gonna to disregard this. Um, curious to see how that works and curious to see whether or not states like Nevada, if others follow suit, that this won't uh, cause the federal government to, to really think about how they go through descheduling or rescheduling at the time. But if they know that no state's willing to, uh, to have their pharmacy boards oversee the, uh, the product, then you know what choice do they have but to say okay let's you know assign this to a, to a different alphabet agency than the FDA. So I I, I love this story because it, it it gets a lot of other wheels you know sort of going in motion. If you know a handful of other states do the same thing that Nevada did and look to Nevada and say that's actually a really smart idea. Now let's start um, thinking about how to how to address it in our own state. More importantly than that, or equally as important to that, is going back to what we discussed last week with interstate commerce. You know, now if you've got a state that says, hey, we don't have any pharmacy board oversight or control on this, and the next step is, you know, let's get a, a similar legal opinion, then it's not like the pharmacy board can jump in into that and say, oh, no, no, you can't do this because we've got oversight. It just takes that much more of a, um, an impediment away from any potential on interstate commerce uh, once we get to that point, especially because it's a contiguous state with California. So um, I thought this was an important uh, announcement. It's huge. And, but, you know, once again, uh, you know, the lawyer in me and I'm sure in you forces me uh, to, you know, to really drill down to what was happening in the courtroom. And, and you know, other than the, the bigger policy that comes out of it, you know, what was the judge really doing? And in this case, you know, the judge specifically said that the pharmacy board in Nevada had acted outside of its authority when it failed to remove cannabis from the list of Schedule One substances. Now, again, this is Nevada's Controlled Substance Act and not the United States, but attorneys in the United States for years have been trying to get a judge to say just that, basically to recognize that cannabis has no business being on a Schedule 1. And here was a Nevada state judge who had no trouble spelling it out and making it the uh, the central part of its uh, his opinion. He went on to say, if the pharmacy board designates a substance as a controlled substance, but the designation falls outside the authority designated by the legislature, the designation is invalid. Now that shows a little bit more interplay between the, the state legislature and the pharmacy board, but even still, the bottom line is, is you can't call something a Schedule One if it's not really a Schedule One. And, you know, thank God that the state of Nevada is, is right on top of that. Agreed. And hats off to the state of Nevada for, uh, for reacting that way and, uh, and, and moving us you know, away from, from Schedule One status. It's uh, still amazing to me that a state that was so anti-cannabis for so many years now is so pro-cannabis. It's just a, it's rare you see such a huge 180. But you know, naturally, we've always thought Nevada would have been a, a place where cannabis would have been accepted based on its acceptance of other vice. But for years, as we've discussed previously, it was not. Now we, we can firmly say that uh, that Nevada has embraced the cannabis industry. That and uh, 
can't remember the name of it, maybe you do, but the new hotel that's opening up soon and, and right near the Strip that's going to be the first 420-friendly hotel. You know, when you can go to Las Vegas, you can buy your marijuana and you can actually just sit in your hotel room and get high. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. Hopefully that's just uh, getting us over the, the, the stumbling blocks out there because Nevada has, you're right, Rob, been a place that has uh, traditionally been a little bit uh, tricky if you're a, a person who enjoys marijuana consumption. Um, back into this show, and uh, even though we've, we've got these great stories today, like I say, this music is, is just fantastic, and we're, we're going to dump, dump back into another song from uh, Feb 13, 1970 at the Fillmore East. This is a song uh, that we're going to play. It's called Little Sadie. It's got a bunch of uh, aliases. Uh, unlike uh, Wake Up Little Susie, this one was only played seven times by the Grateful Dead over a much longer period of time, 66 to 1980. Uh, but let's go and listen to it, and we'll talk more about it on the back end. I'm standing on the corner, reading a bill. Along come the sheriff from Thomasville. Says, young man, is your name Brown? Remember the night you blowed city down? Oh, yes, sir, my name is Lee. I murdered little city in the first degree. First degree and the second degree. Got in the papers, would you read them to me? such a unique song, um, uh, first recorded by Clarence Ashley back in 1929. Uh, the most common version in country and rock is attributed to T.J. Red Arnell's 1947 Western sw Swing recording with W.A. Nichols's Western Aces. It's, it's this version, the uh, 47 version, that we just heard. It, it's been covered in addition to The Dead. Uh, Garcia and Grisman covered it on their Pizza Tapes album, which, by the way, if you've never heard the Pizza Tapes, get it it's it's just a great opportunity to hear those two guys go together with one another and it's really exceptional and they do play a great version of this song but it was been covered by uh johnny cash crooked still doc watson george thorogood a good friend of ours uh saw him open for the rolling stones way back in the day with mike and dan and h and uh of course bob dylan has even uh recorded a version of this although they say his was more uh, closer akin to the original Ashley version back in 29. When you read about the song, the first thing that I learned is that it considered a 20th century folk ballad written in what's called a Dorian mode. Now, I have no idea what that means. I looked it up online and I still have no idea what it means. But there was an interesting list of other hit songs uh, that were written in the Dorian mode, and they include Evil Ways, Lowdown, Foxy Lady, Owner of a Lonely Heart, get those yes folks in there, uh, Moon Dance, Billie Jean, and Scarborough Fair. So uh, apparently, whatever the mode is, a lot of people in rock and roll uh, liked it and, and tried to incorporate it in their uh in their own music, um, and in this instance, it, it's just a great song, and uh, you know, it's like Jerry telling us a story with his guitar, and that's the way all good songs like that are supposed to be. So whether you call it Little Sadie, Bad Lee Brown, Cocaine Blues, Transfusion Blues, East St. Louis Blues, Late One Night, or Penitentiary Blues, it's a great tune, and it was wonderful to hear the dead cover it, and just adding to the joy of those who made it to the Fillmore East on February 13th, 1970. Now, 
There is a show the next night, February 14th, 1970, so a little Valentine's special. Uh, it's hosted by a, uh, a local radio host named Zachary Lee who comes out and uh, has all sorts of fun uh, uh, introductions and other comments along the way. Um, some really, really great tunes in that show as well. Um, but we just went with the 13th because at the end of the day, um, it's got a great combination of tunes, um, new, old, classic, uh, and it ends, and we'll get to this later on tonight, with uh, what many people call the greatest love light ever. So uh, we'll find out if you guys agree with that. Um, but either way, uh, this is just a fantastic show and something that uh, uh, it, it, so, so much fun. that we, Let's just dive right back into one more clip here, Dan, I think, and then we can pull away and get into some other stuff in a minute. Um, but this is a, uh, a very early version of Black Peter, which of course made its debut on Working Man's, which came out shortly after this show. Uh, but listen to this special acoustic version of Jerry. Everything leads up to this day. And it's just like any other day that's ever. Sun going up and down, the sun it going down, shine through my window, and my friends they come around, come around. So that made it into the lineup today, uh, thanks to the suggestion of Rob Hunt, uh, who unfortunately had to run out during that last musical break, tend to some burning business matters or whatever these marijuana guys in California have to tend to. And uh, we will carry on without him, but uh, shout out to Rob because he asked uh, for the Black Peter. And, he, you know, he's absolutely right. I had Monkey and the, and the Engineer slotted in that spot. I love Monkey and the Engineer. It's a fun tune. Um, it's always great to hear the boys play it, especially when they're doing it acoustic. Uh, but, you know, when they're playing an acoustic set, and, and these 1970s shows uh, did have acoustic sets, so it was actually a three-set show, um, to hear Black Peter, because, you know, on the album it's electric, and everywhere else you hear it, it's electric, and uh, here it's just so beautiful. I don't know if it's the Jerry's guitar, if it's his voice, you can really hear the range in his vocals, and it tells a very, very pretty story, and the, the farther I go along in life, the more I realize how, how, how much I underappreciated Black Peter when we were actually uh, going around and hearing all the shows. And we've told this story before. Everybody's waiting for Morning Dew, and if you're not going to get Morning Dew, everybody's looking for Warf, Rat, or Stella. And Black Peter always kind of felt like the afterrun of uh, Jerry Jam's, uh, Jerry Ballad's uh, after the drums and space in the second set. Um, but, you know, when you break them all down, I think Black Peter is right up there with all of them. And uh, it, it just lends itself to being played in this beautiful acoustic manner. And uh, really a lot of fun to listen to. And again, uh, shout out to Rob because he's the one that uh, suggested I go back and drop that in and, and not miss out on an opportunity uh, to spin that as part of today's show. So thank you for that, Rob. Bouncing back over into the news for a little bit. And we got a story here that's 
kind of the downside of where we're at in the industry. You know, we, we've been trying to, to pump it up as much as we can. We're highlighting what's going on in Missouri and, and all the luck they've, not luck, but uh, strong showing that they've had down there, Nevada and the strong direction that it's moving in terms of how it regulates. Uh, but the other side of this story that we've touched on is, you know, what's happening to some of these businesses. They got a jump start on everybody, businesses that have grown and, and grown even larger. And uh, one of the companies that we've talked about from time to time uh, that's had more than its share of problems in, in recent years is MedMen. Uh, MedMen first came on the scene. It was really one of the very first of the big operations to take off, led by Adam Bierman uh, back in 2013 and 2014. Uh, he was a strong presence at all of the conferences, uh, talked a really good game by 2018. Uh, they were doing so well that he was making huge contributions to the various uh, marijuana policy project and other programs like that that uh, support legalization and marijuana use in this country. Uh, and although he could be a divisive figure sometime, and he'd be the first to tell you that, uh, the strides that he made were you know, nothing short of huge. Um, his company made waves when uh, in about 2018 or 2019, they signed a lease for a dispensary on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Uh, significant because not only was it the most expensive real estate, uh, marijuana real estate in the country, um, but at the time, New York had not yet passed uh, its adult use and uh, their medical program was a non-flower medical program. So you go into this beautiful dispensary on Fifth Avenue in the heart of Midtown and you can shop for CBD and CBD vapes and you know, while it would, I think it probably drew a, a certain number of visitors in just because of how unique it is and its location and everything, I don't know that it was really situated uh, well in terms of how much it was costing them to be there given the, the sales that they could recognize. And uh, while I appreciate Adam's uh, train of thought that, look, you know, it's all about publicity. And if you're on Fifth Avenue in New York, that's about the best publicity in terms of location you can get. Uh, but he just uh, fell victim to uh, the times as they were both in cannabis and hemp and everything else. Uh, there's been other problems at uh, MedMen that we've talked about in the past, internal disputes, lawsuits, uh, fights over money. Um, but, you know, for right now, I think it's more important, you know, to focus on uh, the good that they did for the industry and, and the strides that they help it make up. And, you know, Adam's problem was probably just being a few years too early for his time. Uh, there's a number of uh, 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 big MSOs and other groups out there uh, that run marijuana uh, entities, if you will, today, dynasties. Um, and, you know, I, some of them, I think, make Adam seem, uh, you know, kind of pretty tame by comparison, um, you know, and, and some of them uh, make Adam seem very much the norm in terms of a guy who he himself was never really that big into marijuana, uh, but he saw the opportunities there uh, and dived in and went with it. But now it looks like they've kind of reached the end of the line and things do not look well for uh, MedMen and uh, we'll just have to see uh, uh, the headlines talk about them facing a major reckoning, um, which is oftentimes just cover up for boy, you know, the shit's going to really hit the fan here. So let's just see if it does and to what degree. But uh, either way, good luck to MedMen. And um, hopefully uh, they can find a way to be able to stay part of this industry. And if not, we'll just have to remember them for the uh, impressions that they made while they were here. You know, that is sorry to see. And uh, uh, it, it's just sorry because anytime a business fails in the cannabis industry, uh, it, it feels bad. This is an industry we've always talked about that where everybody in the industry has to support one another. Uh, the industry rises and falls based on the overall performance of all of its members, not just a couple of 
you know, golden ones at the front of the line that, uh, you know, have either have the best locations or have come up with the best product or the best advertising or whatever it is that makes them number one. And, you know, that's great. They can be number one. But we have to remember that the folks that are at the back of the line, uh, you know, who, the last ones to get approved who are just coming on board, we need them to succeed too, not only because it gives a more robust uh, and competitive cannabis market, but because we're still in a place in time where the majority of society, not the majority of society, the majority of society of, of adults think that marijuana should be legal, but even within that group and a number of other people who still, you know, kind of scoff at the idea of marijuana a little bit and make light of legal marijuana and really wonder if this is what we need. And every time a dispensary fails, I think they see that as a victory for them, that, you know, the, the society is not so cannabis crazed as everybody likes to say that, you know, we needed all of these dispensaries or all of these cultivation centers. Um, you know, and, and, and it's unfortunate uh, if people go in that direction with it, but we, we know that this exists out there. And the, the way to effectively fight back against that perception is by showing that cannabis companies do survive and they thrive. And they don't all have to make millions of dollars, but they have to be, you know, important parts of their neighborhood and, and such that, uh, you know, they're not looked at as an outsider, but looked at and, and welcomed as a, as a significant part and a contributing member of the uh, financial health and well-being of any municipal uh, municipality or town that uh, chooses to allow uh, marijuana to be sold there. And so when a company this big as MedMen goes, and, and we talked about other companies last week, uh, uh, Cantagro and a few others that are just uh, having all sorts of problems, we have to sit back and, and look at that and really wonder what that means for the industry as a whole and, and hope that uh, in addition to being able to bounce back from whatever financial repercussions they are, that it doesn't push back on the positive spin that everyone's trying to establish for the industry. Because I think that more than anything uh, can really hold back our progress and our ability to eventually allow American adults to get high without worrying about what other people say or think about it. So we will see where that goes and, uh, and, and certainly hope for the best. turning my attention back to my one of my favorite concerts here. As we get into this next phase of the concert, it really becomes great because the boys uh, stretch out and really start to get into uh, a little bit more Primal Dead, uh, which is what we were hoping for uh, anytime we hear them. And, and we've had the ability to hear some of the, uh, the earlier tunes. Uh, so we're going to dive into this one really fast and then uh, talk about it on the way out. So uh, this is... Uh, Part of that's it for the other one. So 
First of all, we are rejoined again by uh, Rob Hunt, who, like every good uh, business exec, knew how to get his business over and done and get back to the important things. So welcome back, Rob. But when you get a full that's it for the other one on this show, it's a a 30-minute stretch. And I was even explaining it a little bit to Dan today when we were trying to get the clips down and everything. But you start off with the framework of that's it for the other one. And then, you know, within that, you have the cryptical envelopment and you have the especially at this time, you have the, the Bill Kreutzmann drum solo. Uh, you eventually get back into the other one. Then you hop back into the reprise at the end. I mean, for 30 minutes, it's like almost a, a little mini concert, right, within all of that. And I like this part uh, because it, this was a, 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 an important part in the 1970s, uh, the early 1970s. Uh, they would put a drop a drum solo in there for a minute, and then you'd get that big, loud, like we just heard, drum introduction to the other one, and it uh, takes you to great places. It does, and yeah, obviously the, the drum solo I think eventually was replaced by the fill bomb, but uh, you know both were, were good ways to, to drop into the other one. And I gotta say, as as much as I like the whole suite, uh, I think you know sometimes I'm I'm disappointed when the dead drop portions of, of songs, like the way they you know sort of stop playing, uh, you know the early part of Weather Report. But you know with the other one, I, I'm almost happy that they eventually just moved to only playing the other one and got rid of the cryptical development part, uh, just because it, I. I I thought it was a bit morose. I was never a huge, uh, never a huge cryptical fan, though. I know a lot of other people are. Yeah. Now, I, look, I love cryptical. We just came along a little too late for it. You know, we got to hear it a few times when they resurrected it for a while there, and it was fun. But look, there's no doubt that if you know you're you're at a at a great jamming concert and they're in the middle of a really hot drums and into space, you know, and you can just hear them leading up, setting the setting the the, the foundation for Phil to come flying in with those bass bombs and, and diving right into the song. And and certainly this is the part of the song uh, that is much more energetic and, and uplifting. And so it's really great to hear and uh, the way they they just pull it all together like that. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, that's the thing I love about these shows is that, uh, you know, it goes all the way from, you know, the acoustics to uh, to sort of the, the deepest spacey far out uh, on the electric and everything in between. And that's why you know, 213 and 21470 are, uh, are such fun shows to, to listen to and it should be part of everyone's collection. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Just go by Dick's Picks 4 and it's a good place to start. So uh, while you were uh, outside, we, uh, we managed to uh, address the issue of MedMen uh, leaving the scene. Don't know if you had any thoughts you wanted to throw into that one or not, but uh, uh, you know, it, it, my, my point was that uh, you can love Adam Berman or you can hate him, but I'm just not a fan of seeing companies fail in the industry because I think that that works against the positive uh, spin that we're trying to put on this industry as being a, a positive and real up-and-coming industry for everybody. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the fact that I don't hate anyone, and uh, I don't think there's there's any place for it. Uh, ain't no time to hate. But what I will say is that while I agree with the sentiment that you just said, I disagree with the approach on it because it's guys like Bierman that, that give black eyes to the industry. You know, if Bierman hadn't been such a shameless impresario and gone out there and shilled for for you know how terrific he was and how he was building the greatest thing in the world and had other people buy into these lofty valuations. I mean, he was kind of the the original uh, pumper into the industry of of uh, setting unrealistic expectations. That you know, if he'd come in and said, "Hey, we're going to try to grow this business," like he he forced every other company behind him to try to follow suit. People saying, "Well, I invested in this company because they said they're going to twenty x my money in the first three years." And you know, if you can't do that, then I'm going with MedMen. Well, never stopping to think whether or not Beerman was full of shit the entire time, which he was. So, you know, when, when I see a company go out of business, there's times I'm almost happy to see them go from the industry because uh, ultimately I think they, they set the stage the wrong way. I'd rather, I'd rather companies that are, are realistic about, you know, how they're going to manage their growth 
be rewarded instead of left by the wayside because investors think that, um, that they can do better elsewhere because you've got guys like Bierman, you know, trying to convince them that they're the, the, the second coming of Christ. It's, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, and it raises a really interesting point, you know, because I was thinking about this before. And what I come away with is I think that Adam Bierman was a product of the forces that were coming together at that time, which was an emerging cannabis market. Uh, but back in 2012 and 2013, uh, you know, it was a much different time than where it was today. And there were not uh, a lot of people, big companies or otherwise, really rushing in uh, to get into this space. And, and you know, uh, for better or for worse, Adam kind of stepped into that void and, and, and really became one of the first ones to go in that direction. And I raise this because uh, one of the other stories we have today is that Australia just legalized psilocybin and MDMA prescriptions. Uh, and, and the U.S., we know, we, we've talked about this in the past, that patients are seeking similar authorization. And if, in fact, they pass that authorization in the United States, who are going to be the Adam Bermans of the psilocybin industry? Who are going to be the people that are going to be willing to step in, you know, whether they're good guys or jerks, uh, you know, to fill that initial void and, you know, try to get the industry jump-started and moving forward? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're saying who are the next charlatans that we can, <laughs> we can count on to, uh, to create bombast and, uh, and, and, you know, ridicule their, their competition... You know, that's like that's like asking who the next um, pharma bro is. You know, who the next Martin Scarelli is. I think, hopefully, hopefully, no one would be my answer. Uh, you know, the, the already the uh, the the psychedelic space is chock full of um, of people that are trying to, you know, exact as much uh, investment capital as they can without having a real path forward, without having any like idea of how they're going to drive a profit. So, you know, and again, it's not to say a lot of people haven't been successful making those early investments, but I think, you know, in many ways, in the United States, the, the 1.0 psychedelic investments already come and gone. You know, I know a lot of guys that exited two, three years ago, they're like, I wouldn't put another dollar into it right now. We were putting all of our money in sort of the pre-RTO raises, uh, you know, round one, round two, round, you know, even maybe round three uh, privately before they went public. But if you look at the public performance of, uh, of the, the psychedelics market, it's no better than the uh, than the performance right now of the cannabis market. So, um, and you know, as you know, as big a fan as I am of psychedelics, I'm still not convinced that psychedelics have the same path ahead of them that the cannabis does. I just, I think there's too many unknowns that uh, that go along with that market. So, fantastic that Australia is making that move. Uh, I hope every country makes a move towards saying you know people should be able to experiment with uh, with substances as they so choose, but. Do I want um, some person out there on soapbox talking about how they're the, the, the greatest purveyor of ayahuasca? I, I certainly don't. Okay, well, I can appreciate that in, uh, that sentiment and that perspective as well. I, I guess the answer to my question is, is there's always somebody willing to sell something if people are willing to pay for it. Um, you know, but if, if we can try and find a way... Well, maybe well, or said differently, there's a sucker born every day. Well, <laughs> that's true. If, if, you're gonna put, if we're going to put the onus back on the consumer, I agree with that too. But, you know, I, I guess the point is, is that even in psychedelics, it's, it's not just enough to have somebody pop up and say, hey, I'm going to be the guy selling psychedelics here or there. The thing that I, I look at MedMen was is that while I, I understand your sentiments, I, I think that they sent a message to everybody that 
look, you can be big, you can advertise. You know, in some respects, I kind of felt, you know, like Adam was somebody who liked to try and, you know, tweak society's nose all the time anyway. You know, who else goes and drops a dispensary on Fifth Avenue in the middle of midtown Manhattan, knowing that all you can sell is CBD. But nevertheless, there's a presence of an, you know, of of a cannabis store on Fifth Avenue. And people walk by and they say, oh, look, they're selling cannabis on Fifth Avenue now. And even if they don't know MedMen, and even if they don't know who is it, who's behind it, they see a, you know, a relatively modern type of uh, sales facility as opposed to the thought of running into a bodega in the back and, you know, trying to get your, you know, your weed from a guy behind a counter who doesn't look at you in the eye kind of thing. And it, I guess in other words, you know, he took it more mainstream in that regard in terms of the way it was presented and the way it was showcased. Sure. If we're going to try to find the silver lining that exists, you know, in this discussion, then, then yes, you know, the mainstreaming of cannabis, we can certainly, you know, thank Bierman for, uh, for, for getting involved and trying to, uh, to, to showcase it. But, you know, I looked at that going, okay, this is just another example of him trying to fleece investors because anyone that knew the New York market at the time knew it was an absolute impossibility to turn a profit uh, with what the regulations were and what the, the way that you could actually sell. I mean, at the time, you couldn't even sell flour, right? So 50% of the market is gone day one, and you're paying you know, $100,000 a month in rent for, uh, for this location. I mean, the, the entire thing, if looked at objectively, was the height of foolishness. You know, and I, I look at other, you know, marquee locations that people overpay for, and uh, they don't make a great deal of sense to me. The, the operators I've always appreciated in the canvas space are the ones who go, yeah, we can take this mainstream, but we don't need to, you know, be like an Hermes store where we're going to, you know, put out t-shirts that say, like, Aspen, L.A., Tokyo. You know, just a, that, that's not necessary to sell weed. This isn't, uh, this, this isn't you know, uh, LVMH. You know, it's, it's, this isn't a luxury brands company. This is weed. So, you know, just make a great product, find a good location, people will come and you don't have to charge exorbitant prices to, uh, to get them to come in, you know, because you've got this, uh, this um, uh, lifestyle that you're trying to create around it of like, you know, you too can be successful if you, you know, shop at MedMen on Fifth Avenue. And I thought that, you know, yes, he may have mainstreamed it, but he also probably has, again, set unrealistic expectations uh, that I think ultimately did significantly more damage to the industry than, than any positive he might have brought. But, I mean, look, I can bash out on Beerman all day. So if you want to keep going down this road, I mean, we should probably talk about something else. But it's one of my, one of my favorite topics of conversation is, you know, like, it, like it, it, economics class can be taught or a law class can be taught about all the things that guy did wrong and, and what damage he did to the industry in the process and how many investors he hurt and how much money was just absolutely destroyed, like, in terms of value as a result of, um, of him feeding nonsense to, uh, to the investors. And at this point, look, I hope he's listening. I, I hope he thinks that there's some sort of recourse for me saying this stuff. But, uh, you know, the, the, the best defense to slander is truth. Okay. Well, well said. And uh, I think you're right. It's probably time to move on. And we will, we, we've, we've hashed that discussion out about as much as we can. I want to turn back to the comment you made, though, about legalizing psilocybin. Uh, because, interestingly enough, I, too, have a little bit of concern in that area. You know, and my concern stems from the fact that I have seen people who have had a few too many edibles and the reactions that they have as a result. And I can only imagine the type of reactions that people will have if they inadvertently or vertently <laughs> eat a little too much psilocybin. Um, you know, with marijuana, you can, there's, there's a little bit of room to work with. If you eat too much psilocybin and, you know, you get the, the trip machine in your body rocking forward, uh, that, can be a lot, that can be a lot more difficult for people to cope with and could take substantially longer for you to come back down and, and normalize yourself. Yeah, I mean, look, from the perspective of someone that in the past has definitely eaten 
far too much psilocybin, you know, I, I can tell you that it can go from fun to scary relatively quickly. And again, much like edibles, you know, people don't take the advice of start slow or start low and go slow. Uh, oftentimes they go, oh, I'm not feeling anything. Maybe I'll take a little more. Oh, I'm not feeling anything. Maybe I'll take a little more. And, you know, there is a, uh, a an onset that exists with uh, with psilocybin like there is with, uh, with with cannabis edibles consumption before it, you know, is uh, absorbed into your bloodstream. And uh, I can tell you, like, you know, I've, I've gotten high enough where I'm uh, relatively uncomfortable as to <laughs> what, what my future looks like for the next four or five hours. And, uh, and that's not something that I would recommend, you know, for a lot of people. I've also, more importantly, witnessed a lot of people that are very experienced with psychedelics going past the point of okay, as I'm sure you have as well. And whether it's a bad trip or whether it's just simply too much, you know, I've, I've, had, I've had to talk quite a few friends off the ledge over the years, you know, fortunately not too recently. But, uh, and, and then there is the proverbial ledge and the actual ledge, which is, you know, if, if, if your faculties are that impaired, you know, can you get yourself into harmful situations inadvertently? And then there's, you know, is there liability attached to that if someone's actually selling you a product that they know causes that kind of um, reaction? You know, look, it's it, in a controlled environment, you know, going back to sort of the Timothy Leary um, school of, of, of psychedelics, of controlled environment, the shamans, you know, in Peru. That's one thing, but realistically, that's not how people trip. You know, people trip by, by going out there and, and having fun. It's, it's not all about um, uh, clinical, you know, studies and, and uh, controlled environment settings. It's, you know, as the voice said, I subscribe to the Ken Kesey School of Psychedelics, which is let's get out there and go nuts and have fun. And uh, if, if that's the way you're doing it, you know, there are going to be casualties. And, and I don't see the U.S. government uh, supporting that. I just don't. Yeah, I, I think that it, it is much more problematic. Although, you know, this uh, people really uh, they still do, you know, kind of make snide remarks and secondhand comments about medical marijuana. Yeah, yeah, sure, medical marijuana, and and medical marijuana has worked wonders for me, so I don't downplay it at all. But I think a lot of people tend to do that. I think that if psilocybin uh, and MDMA have any future, it, they have a future strictly as a medical application, strictly with a doctor's prescription and strictly, you know, in controlled amounts. Um, I guess you can't always control the, the location of where you're at, but with, with detailed instructions on where, when, and how, and what to expect and what to do if you find yourself in a position where you think you've taken too much. I don't know whether the medical community will ultimately want that much responsibility for it, although there's stories all over the place about how therapists and, and, and other counselors and stuff like that have seen, you know, wonderful results when used the right way with certain types of patients. Um, but I'm guessing we're probably still a long way away from having, having any kind of reliable medical knowledge on uh, who and what and how much at any one time. And, you know, I, I think that's always going to be the problem with these things. You know, when back in school, you could eat a little baggie of mushrooms one time and, you know, be trying to get yourself down from the clouds and eat the same amount the next time and be sitting there wondering what the hell happened. Why isn't anything going on for me this time, you know? So it, it's just uh, one day you're up, one day you're down. Did I eat a big meal? Am I tired? Am I, you know, what, what else is going on with me? And it's a lot of factors to take into account. Yeah, but that, that's you're talking about, you know, where you're eating the carrier, though, right? If ultimately you're talking about taking, you know, doses of psilocybin, then that's much more controlled like taking doses of THC. But again, to play the, the today's contrarian or you know, counterpoint role of, of you know, being a real cynic with this, I would also look at it from the perspective of you know, the argument you just made is the same argument that Purdue Pharmaceuticals made with OxyContin. 
which is, you know, taken the right way, you know, they can do a lot of good. It can help a lot of people. And the answer is it can. You know, Oxycontin's a terrific product if, if taken, you know, correctly and taken in a clinical setting and taken exactly as prescribed. But realistically, that's not what happens. People like to get high. And you put something out there that can be abused, it's going to get abused. You know, the, 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 there's no two ways about it. Even if it's something that, that is, you know, terrific for you medically, there, there isn't a, um, a product that gets you high on the market that uh, that isn't abused, even if it's uh, prescribed as a pharmaceutical, whether it's, you know, whether it's morphine, whether it's oxy, whether it's uh, Vicodin, you know, you name the, the product, they all have a, a level of abuse. I mean, shit, what cream is abused to the point that you, you now have to, like, get it from behind the counter? You know, I, I, had to, I had to get someone at Walgreens yesterday to go and unlock a case to get me Flonase, right? So whatever it is, it, it, it's going to be abused. So, you know, do I want something that we all know can have, you know, detrimental effects? Uh, much more so than a lot of other substances. Cannabis, as I said, is relatively innocuous. You know, it's, it's hard to get yourself in trouble with it. You know, with edibles you can, but you know there's no level of toxicity that'll kill you. With psychedelics, like, ah, <laughs> I, I've seen the other side, man. I, I've been there, and I, I, know how, I know how dark they can be and, and how unpredictable they can be. Uh, even, if, even if you were to take the same dose three times in a row, your body could have a completely and totally different reaction depending on a thousand different stimuli that exist in your life at that moment. True. It'll be fascinating to see, for me to see as we go down the road uh, whether there's a way that you know, science and medicine and big pharma, whoever tackles it, can try and figure out a way to come up with consistent doses of that kind of stuff. But I guess unless you can control for the other factors that are going on in your body at the time, they may not ever be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, even, if they, even if they could, I mean, I understand the idea of... Uh, of you know, the whole microdose idea of let's make sure the dose is small enough that, you know, we're trying to, to reach parts of your brain or parts of like, you know, sort of your inner psyche that you otherwise wouldn't hit by even just giving you a small dose. And, and hopefully from a, um, a psychiatric perspective, you know, that can unlock all sorts of things. Like I am all for that, a hundred percent behind it. But at the same time, I know that, you know, 20 micrograms turns into 50 micrograms, turns into a hundred mics, turns into a, you know, a pinky print of crystal. And it's, you know, the, the, the more you, the more you experiment, the, the more your desire is to see, okay, you know, can you go, can you go a step deeper? You know, it's kind of like the, the movie Flatliners, you know, a certain point, you know, like how far, how far are you willing to go to, uh, to see what's out there? And with psychedelics, because the interest level is so high, the, the desire to go deeper is relatively greater. At least it was for, for me. And I think it is for a lot of people that have like an adventurous spirit. But, you know, you also have to temper that with sort of knowing the deeper you get, the, the you know, it, it's like, it's like diving. Like you want to go deeper in the water and once you start experiencing nitrogen narcosis, there's a, a certain desire to, to get narked a little bit more because it's such a euphoric feeling. But you have to temper that with knowing that if you go too deep, you're not getting back to the surface. And it's a very, very similar um, the, the thing for me. Yeah, no, I, look, I can definitely see that and understand that. And you know, any of us who have ventured down that road have, had, you know, experienced that one way or another if, if we've been adventurous in, in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, it's happened at uh, it's happened at dead shows where, you know, I've spent the whole time uh, doing everything but actually watching the show. Um, so, yeah, it, it's... It, 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 <laughs> Avoiding mirrors. Well, that too, yeah. You know, all sorts of stuff that goes along with it. But, you know, the, the, the converse, this conversation about 
narcotics and medicine leads me to a, a, another story that I found today. And, you know, this is like a, a word to the wise, but in kind of a reverse way, right? Um, there's, there's stories coming out now that if you're a, a candidate for surgery or of any type or otherwise have to be put under anesthesia for either for a, a dental procedure or colonoscopy, I suppose, or anything else where they, they knock you out, um, that they're telling you you need to disclose, even if not asked, to the anesthesiologist that you are a marijuana smoker and the level of marijuana that you smoke, not because they're concerned about a negative interaction that might result, like if you eat a lot of food before you go in and get put under, but because your resistance might be so high that the anesthesiologist might determine that you need a larger dose of anesthesia to properly put you under and keep you under. And, you know, quite frankly, that was that, that spin of something like that was not something that I ever thought of before. My father's a surgeon, so I always kind of grew up with this understanding. If you're going in for surgery, you don't do anything beforehand uh, because it's, it's going to be bad for you. But this you know, kind of turns it on its head a little bit, except to the, I guess it's bad for you if they don't give you enough because they don't know that you're a pot smoker. So, um, you know, I'd like to see more information about this. And um, my, uh, my son's father-in-law is an anesthesiologist down in Georgia, so maybe he and I can sit down and uh, talk about this a little bit and try and get more to the point on it. But I would say it certainly makes sense to me, um, you know, that if, if you are a person who uses cannabis on any kind of a regular basis and you're going to have surgery, I would recommend letting your anesthesiologist know about it to make sure you stay comfortable during that surgery. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that in theory also. But I also know that people are still so paranoid to, to be put on any sort of list or have anything in their file. And the, I think the article was actually really good to point out that the person that wrote it being an anesthesiologist said, look, we don't care. We're not passing judgment here. But that's fine. But are you putting something in my file? And as the next person that you know sees that, and are you going to have a point at some point where you don't get insured because they pull your medical records and here it is that, you know, you're a habitual cannabis user. So until we remove the stigma and, you know, have it so people can't um, uh, deny you coverage or deny you benefits or deny you other things based on your cannabis use, I don't think it's all that realistic to expect that everyone's going to volunteer that information, even if it's probably in their best interest to do so. Well, I think you're right, and, and, and you touch on another big point, which is something that we all rail about all the time, which is normalization. Nobody should be embarrassed or afraid to go in and tell their doctor, and they should. You're, you, the, the, the concern you describe is spot on. Even if the doctor says, I don't care, but now you've told them something, they've got to put it into their file to maintain a complete file on you, and you're right. If some insurance company comes back and reviews it, another doctor reviews it, a new potential employer reviews it, you have no idea. And so what it does, I guess, is it creates this... Uh, kind of conflict between, you know, doing what's really best for yourself and trying to maintain a somewhat private uh, public profile in terms of how much information of yours is available out there. And, you know, I, I, you're right. I think that a lot of people will, as a result, not say anything, but I just don't want to see a case where somebody in the middle of, you know, gallbladder surgery all of a sudden wakes up because they were a heavy smoker. They didn't tell their anesthesiologist. Uh, that ain't going to be fun. So, uh, you know, it'll be, it's going to be interesting to see how, how doctors work to kind of bridge that, uh, that gap between necessary knowledge and reluctance to share it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think in certain parts of everyone's life, you go through that, what you say or don't say. And I can tell you when doctors ask, you know, do you drink? I think 95% of Americans lie about how much they drink uh, because they don't want to say that they're, you know, more than a casual drinker. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, I have one a day. I don't know anyone that ever tells their doctor anything more than that. And I can tell you that on another side, I got hit by one time by a um, an out-of-control skier when I was working at Snowbird. Clearly concussed. I mean, the guy came over a berm and hit me dead on with his skis against my head. Uh, you know, saw stars, couldn't get up for a minute or two. 
And I couldn't do a thing about it because had I gone into uh, to to get checked out, I would have had to because I was an employee, I would have had to do a urinalysis. And with a urinalysis, it would have absolutely come up that I used cannabis, and I would have been fired on the spot, despite the fact that I was the victim in this case. So basically, I had to deny myself medical coverage because of a because of a drug testing policy that that Snowbird had at the time, which hopefully they don't have anymore. And I know for sure that I'm not the only person that dealt with that. Like anytime there's any sort of issue, the you, you, you had to basically self-police. I mean, one of my co-employees, like, one of them was like, you should get checked out. And the other one was like, yo, man, if you do, like, you're going to have to pee. And I was like, ah. So, the, again, from normalization, we, we, have, to, we have to humanize this and, and treat people uh, fairly first and then think about, you know, whether or not there's some sort of harm. But I, I do blame the insurance companies. I blame the, like, out-of-control HR departments for a long time of, of being convinced that they had to, to take these policies, especially on, on a substance where you couldn't tell whether or not the person was impaired at the time of an accident. So, you know, we've got, we've come a long way since then, but we still have a long way to go until it's fully normalized. Absolutely. And on that note, let's dive back into our concert for a minute because we got the follow-up portion of uh, the That's It for the Other One Jam. And this brings us in right as they're making the final transition. So, Dan, if you could spin that for us and we'll go back to 1970 and jam out. Come by, I got home, that's when it all began. There was Carmonil at the wheel, the bus to never ever land. that man they are just they're they're tearing through the other one and literally on a dime they just stop and they slot right over back into the reprise the the tempo comes down jerry's picking his guitar we hear him singing at the end what a what a great 30 minutes of music it is impressive very very impressive that they're able to do it that way uh and you know the masters of the transition jam and the masters of being able to uh, thematically know exactly where the other members are to switch like that, which, you know, sometimes is easy to do in, um, in like Pink Floyd style music where everything is orchestrated. Very, very difficult to do when you're a jazz ensemble or when you're you know, a jam band. You know, just really quickly, you mentioned Pink Floyd. They were in the news the other day because they had a little blow up between Waters and Gilmore. And when I saw the headline, I'm like, haven't these guys... Uh, it was already- Gilmore's wife that, uh, that, that got into it with him. Well, that too. But haven't these guys like been... This is our final argument where we hate each other. Every five years, they have a new, you know, now this one, they're, they're obviously getting a little more personal with Roger Waters, and I try to steer away from that as much as I can because even though I don't approve of what Roger Waters does and his messages, um, I love Pink Floyd's music, so that's always kind of created a little bit of a, of a conflict for me, but uh, it, it just was fascinating to me to, to read that these guys, you know, it's almost on a certain level as though, you know, 
I don't know how many kids today or people today that are listening to music really even associate with Pink Floyd, certainly on the same level that we did when they were such an integral part of the music scene and, and everything that we were getting into at the time. But I guess, you know, if you, if you go by the school that says any publicity is good publicity, people are talking about him again this week. Yeah, I guess. And, uh, you know, I think they're still relevant. Uh, they've got a huge amount of publicity putting out their 50th anniversary of Dark Side with the whole, uh, you know, prism and the, the, the MAGA Republicans thinking that they were like this woke band. And it's like, no, it's, uh, it's the same, same theme they had 50 years ago. <laughs> so it's uh, always very funny to me what people glom on to to be angry about these days. Uh, for me, it just stays with Adam Beerman. <laughs> Listen, uh, well, here, here's some quick music news. You saw that uh, we talked, I think, that Phil was going to do two shows at the Salt Shed here, March 11th and 12th, and now Warren Haynes has been announced to play at those two shows, which I'm very, very excited about because Phil's going to be in New York the next week at the Cap Theater for his birthday shows, and I have not seen that Warren's going to be following him to New York. This might be it. Yeah, that's possible, but... Uh... Yeah, anytime you get a chance to see Warren play with anyone, uh, I'm all for it, and certainly love seeing him with uh, with Phil too. So it should be a should be a lot of fun. Um, you know, definitely makes you at this point. I, I'm I'm hitting the point where I think any Phil show you can see, you should go see because uh, I, I can't imagine there's too many more left in him. You know, I think we're probably down to the last the last handful, um, based on everything I've been seeing. So and you know, he's, he's certainly he's certainly picking some great musicians to play with these days and. Yeah, I don't know if you listened to any of those uh, collabs with, uh, with with Rick recently, but those were pretty darn good too from Denver. Uh, so if you haven't seen those, they're, there's they're out there on YouTube right now. There's a handful of videos, and uh, and they are smoking hot. They are smoking hot, you know, and he deserves a lot of credit for it. But what I think is so amazing is not that he wants to keep playing, but that all of these younger performers are are standing in line to play with him. You know, and, and, and I mean, obviously you could say, well, the guy's a legend, but still, if you got to get on stage with somebody, you want to know that that person's going to be able to hold up their end of the bargain. And, you know, based on, you know, when you get Warren Haynes to just announce like that, I'm in, you know, I, I just take that as a positive sign that at least for now, thank God, Phil's going strong and I can't wait to see him. I, it's, it's, but you're right, you know, you, you see him and you walk out and you're like, will there be a next time? Yeah, well, I certainly hope there is. I definitely, definitely hope there is. As do I. Um, now, earlier this week, so a week ago, for a week or more, if you're when you're finally listening to this, we had the Grammy Awards, and there's two things that came out of the Grammys that I I just thought were too important that that couldn't be passed. And the first one, given that this is a Deadhead Cannabis show, is that the Grateful Dead won a Grammy, only their second ever. In 2017, the Grateful Dead won a Lifetime Achievement Award. That came many years after Garcia had died, so it's kind of hard to call it a real uh, Grammy for the Grateful Dead, although, you know, Lifetime Achievement is certainly not a bad thing. But this year, 2023, in a category that I did not even know existed, the Grateful Dead won for the best box set or limited edition for their In and Out of the Garden, Madison Square Garden, 81, 82, and 3 box set, which we have discussed on this show. And God love them. You know, how, 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 after all these years, look at how relevant they still are. Just by putting out, they're not playing, they're not doing anything. And, you know, they, they come up with something like that. So good to the boys, uh, David Lemieux and the whole artistic staff that helped create this box set. Um, good for them. You know, any publicity is good publicity. And I'm, I'm happy to see the dead still being recognized. Rob, I got to tell you, it sure makes me feel like our show is relevant when that happens. Yeah, in 27 years, maybe people will still be listening to us. You know, it's, uh, we, 
we, we can only hope, you know, maybe, we, maybe we're just hitting our, um, our, our creative peak right now, but no one's going to recognize our genius until, uh, you know, our children are older. Well, that's okay. Then our, then our children will get to have a little knock us out of all the good stuff that we've done. So as long as somebody gets, to, gets it, that, that's good. But here's the other one, and this one blew me away for a bunch of reasons. Bonnie Raitt wins Song of the Year for her song Just Like That. This was the first time Bonnie Raitt ever won an Os- uh, a Grammy for songwriting. I, she's been around forever. I could not believe that. So what I will say is she has won for Album of the Year. She won for, I think, in 1990 for, uh, I want to say it was Nick of Time was, uh, was her album at the time. But uh, what I found surprising is what a backlash there was against Bonnie Raitt of people online going, who is this woman? I've never heard of her. Like, you know, how, how did Beyonce get passed over? Like, for some random obscure blues singer. Well, this random obscure blues singer's been around for 50 years, and she's already won album of the year before. So, uh, you know, okay, great. You know, Taylor Swift wrote an amazing epic that a lot of people are upset didn't win, you know, for, for songwriting. Uh, and that song was absolutely relevant last year. Perhaps in terms of popular culture, what Taylor did is more relevant. But if you read, you know, the story behind uh, the reason Bo- uh, Bonnie Raitt wrote this song, it's a lovely story. And I think that the, um, the people that make the judgment on, on who wins these things looked at and looked at for the songwriting um, quality that was there and said, okay, you know, despite popular uh, uh, support, you know, Bonnie should get the credit for writing a great song. And she wrote a great song. So, you know, hats off to Bonnie. And uh, maybe maybe this makes it so more people in the next generation uh, understand her creative genius, uh, despite the fact that it's 30 years after they should have. Look, here's what I'm going to say. If you've seen Bonnie Raitt in concert before, you could never say anything like what Beyonce people are saying about Beyonce. Bonnie Raitt is maybe one of the finest guitar players alive today. Bonnie Raitt has a, I, I, you know, what she sang a little while later in that beautiful duet she sang, her voice was just, with Sheryl Crow, her voice was just unbelievable. I, I had never really considered just how beautiful Bonnie Raitt's voice is. She's such a veteran performer, and if anything, the people like Beyonce ought to be thanking Bonnie Raitt for setting the table for women performers in music uh, because, you know, in, I mean, what was really a man's industry, not just, you know, guitar playing, rock and roll, but country, all of that, and Bonnie Raitt is, she's the king. Well, there's the irony, right? Is if you were to say to Taylor Swift, what do you think of Bonnie Raitt? I'm sure Taylor Swift would bow down and say she's amazing, and, you know, when I was young and I was a country musician, you know, one of the people I learned from the most was, was probably, I mean, I'm, I'm just guessing this. So it's, it's, it's not the artists themselves, it's the fans. I mean, they, you always think that like, if you're a heavy metal band, it only means you listen to heavy metal. And if you're you know, a blues band, you want to listen to the blues. Great musicians listen to everyone. And, uh, and, and their canon of understanding of you know, music. Uh, I'm quite certain um, Beyonce is very familiar with who Bonnie Raitt is and probably has a great deal of respect and reverence for, for what she's done. So, you know, okay, great. The, the fans out there of the, uh, the sort of the new pop you know, culture uh, don't appreciate Bonnie Raitt. That, that's okay. The, the musicians that you love do. And, you know, and you, and you mentioned the backstory, right? It's a story about a woman who donated her son's heart after his death, and she met the organ, the, the, the organ recipient. And as Bonnie Raitt said, she lost it when the, when the man let the mother hear her late son's heart beating inside of him. It's like, you know, you hear that. That, that, and of course, for deadheads, let's not kid ourselves, that has a whole special relevance because we're sitting here talking about Phil. If you've seen a Phil show any time in the last 25 years or so, you've heard the donor rap. And you've heard Phil tell you about how 
somebody else's unselfishness and willingness to, to make a gift of an organ saved his life. And we're all, in, we're all uh, grateful for that because you know, what Phil has been doing for us for the last 25 years, 23 years has been nothing short of amazing. It, you know, he's, he's had a tremendous uh, second career, you know, once the dead disbanded and, and he kind of, you know, ventured out on his own. And, you know, and, and some would argue, and I might rightfully agree, that he's been the true keeper of the dead flame throughout all of this time. And, uh, you know, where would we be today if he had died because there wasn't a, a, an organ donor available at a time when he needed a new organ? Yeah, I agree. And uh, you think about how long ago it's been now, and this isn't like, you know, or he got a new lease of like three or four years. He's had, you know, 20 plus years uh, on this liver. So it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. And, uh, you know, for all those out there, you know, Phil does his rap, but I'll say it as well. You know, talk to the people you love and, and become an organ donor. It definitely can change someone's life. No doubt about it. And, and, and hats off to Bonnie for, for, for putting it down in music and, and doing it so well. And, and just as a final thought on that, I love the, uh, the shout-out she gave to John Prine, too, who's just another musical legend who I think doesn't always get the, the credit and the attention that he deserves. Um, and uh, he was just uh, absolutely incredible. And so I, I thought that was a very touching moment by her uh, to give him a shout out at that point in time and uh, I was very happy to hear that. Well, we've talked and talked, we've listened to a lot of great music and I hope you guys have all been uh, enjoying this because uh, you know these are the kind of shows I think that I can speak for me and maybe Rob too that are just really so much fun. You know, you have a great Grateful Dead show to talk about with so much good stuff behind it. A lot of good stuff happening in the world of cannabis, some of it good, some of it not so good, but it's just the reality of having legal cannabis. So yeah, Rob, I'm glad you made it back and we're able to finish out the show with us. Always good to have your point of view on things. And um, you know, we just, we just have one more song here to go on the way out the door. Uh, one of our favorites, Love Light, um, song by Joe Scott and Don Roby, also known as Dedrick Malone, uh, first recorded by the Bobby Blue Bland, Bobby Blue Bland in 1961, um, and certainly a song that's been listed in the top 500 songs that shape rock and roll, uh, and all of this stuff. It, it was uh, uh, first played by the Dead as part of their uh, Dark Star Saint Stephen the Eleven Love Light Suite from. Uh, live Dead and, and that whole era. Um, they brought it back and it uh, got a lot of playment, uh, a lot of playing through um, uh, the Europe 72 tour and then it dropped off the stage for a while till Bobby brought it back for one performance, one performance in 81, a few more in 82 and then starting in 84 uh, it got back into the rotation and they, they played it all the way up to the end and I always liked it when the Dead played it when I saw it, you know Bobby's not Pigpen, but I thought he did a decent job singing it, and Jerry was just still blazing away on the guitar. You know, he doesn't care who's singing it. He loves playing that song. And, uh, you know, when they're playing it, they were just really, really clicking. But how wonderful is it to actually hear, you know, Pigpen, we were talking about before, uh, being a blues master. And, uh, you know, on this tune, he just kind of takes it and makes it his own. And uh, I think that this final cut is, is great because what we've been saying all along, first of all, it's another 30-minute a uh, 30-minute song, right? They played an hour and a half, almost two hours of music, and then they closed out with 90 minutes, a 30-minute Dark Star into a 30-minute That's In for the other one into a 30-minute Love Light. And for me, I can't imagine a better Grateful Dead show than something like that where you just get the full benefit of, of all that extended jamming and all that just tremendously great music 
but, but listen to this, when Pig's kind of doing his rapping, uh, and then on a dime, he just stops, jumps into that little box back nitty chant of his, and, and boom, the, the band's right with him. Once again, reading each other's minds uh, and, and putting them there. And, and Rob, I say, you know, you, you, you got to love Pig. I love Pig. And going back to our theme earlier, Wake Up Little Susie, uh, Pig's rap is certainly far dirtier than, <laughs> than Wake Up Little Susie ever was. So... Uh, Working undercover and we ball all night. If you, yeah, if, if you haven't listened to an early pig version of Love Light and listened to it all the way through, do it, but probably not safe for work. Um, but otherwise, it, it is a lot of fun. So, Rob, uh, as always, thank you, man. Great show. And uh, Dan Humiston, thank you for doing a great job for us. We are excited uh, to have everyone back next week with... February is a very rich month for the dead. There's lots of good stuff going on in February, and we're going to try to cover it as much of it as we can. Um, but otherwise, uh, enjoy pig pen, enjoy love light, have a great week, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Make me feel so good, so long. Yes, I will. One whole thing. Ain't gonna tell you all. But I'll just tell you a little bit. One of the reasons she make me feel so good. One of them reasons that you make me feel so nice. Cause she got back, back, steady. Great thinking over fast. Working on the cover wheel of fog. I got to be a Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.